Good morning, Saints. My name is Rene Rodriguez. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Church at Westchester. Um, Thank you. Let me start again. Good morning, church. My name is Rene Rodriguez. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Church Westchester. Before I get started uh, on my sermon this morning, I just wanted to echo something that Pastor uh, Tim Garber said two weeks ago, and just to tell you what a a privilege it is to serve this church. Uh, This morning, I'm going to be providing a sermon um, on Psalm 32. On August 5th, 2010, at approximately 2 o'clock in the afternoon, a collapse of the main ramp leading into the San Jose mine in the Atacama region, northern Chile, trapped 33 miners half a mile below the surface of the earth. A single block of stone as tall as a 45-story building and with the estimated weight of two Empire State buildings broke off the rest of the mountain and fell through the layers of the mine, causing a chain reaction and a collapse of the mountain. The collapse happened amid earlier warnings of vibrations and disturbances that were felt and heard by the miners for days before the collapse. The copper mine and gold mine, which opened in 1889, was no stranger to disaster. Just three years earlier, an explosion took the lives of three miners. And yet, despite this recent tragedy and warnings of potential disaster, very little had been done to improve the conditions of the mine. In the days that followed, journalists from all over the world descended on the location, captivated by the human drama that was unfolding before them in real time. Soon they were joined by over one billion people from all over the world who tuned into the local TV stations and social media feeds. It was like a scripted reality show. It had good guys, it had bad guys, and a tense story arc whose ending was not yet known. Numerous probes attached with microphones were drilled into the mountain, searching and hoping to affirm some sign of life. For 16 days, probe after probe, 30 in all, were painstakingly drilled into the mine at various locations. And the result of each drill probe was the same. There was no sound at all coming from down below. As the drama continued to play out, the families and loved ones of the miners, as well as the journalists, gathered on the surface, creating a makeshift tent city they called Campo Esperanza, or Camp Hope. Anxiety gripped the families and the world as they watched, hoped, and prayed that somehow, in spite of the odds, the miners would be found alive. Then finally, on the 17th day, a probe broke through an area known as the Refuge, a room where the men were gathered. No one knew at this point if the men would be found alive, but this probe confirmed that indeed, all 33 men had survived. On October 5th, 2010, 69 days after the collapse of the mine, each of the the trapped Chilean miners was brought up to safety, one miner at a time. The miners had been literally rescued from the dark depths of the earth. They had endured respiratory problems from breathing the dank air and fungal infections, but they all survived. Upon reaching the surface and safety, knowing that they had all been rescued, each miner to a man rejoiced, weeping, and hugging their loved ones, ecstatically giving thanks to their rescuers 
and some to God for their improbable rescue and their second chance at life. Friends, imagine for just a moment that you were one of these miners who was res rescued from the brink of death. You walk out of the mine, tears streaming down your face, you're crying, you're laughing, your happiness bubbling over because you had been rescued and given a second chance at life. This is not unlike the feeling of utter joy and thankfulness that is being expressed by King David in Psalm 32. David's rescue came when his sins were forgiven by God after confession, a forgiveness that pulled him from the darkness and death and into light and life. David's rescue was a spiritual rescue, a rescue that was so glorious, so worthy of celebration, that he broke out into jubilant shouting and singing. This is a joy that David teaches in Psalm 32 that should be in the hearts of all who know God's forgiveness. I'm going to invite you at this time to open up your Bibles to Psalm 32. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the seat in front of you. And if you don't have a copy of God's Holy Word to call your own, we would like you to keep this Bible as a gift from us. If you're familiar with the Bible or not familiar with the Bible, uh, it can be found on page 462. If you are familiar with the Bible, Psalm 32 can be found between Psalm 31 and Psalm 33. We're going to begin by going to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll read God's word together. Holy Father in heaven, we praise you as the one true God who is deserving of all praise. We ask that you would open up our understanding this morning so that we might receive the truth of your scripture. We ask that your spirit would guide the teaching as it has guided the preparation. Help me, Father, to speak your word with faithfulness and clarity. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone with us this morning who has not yet trusted in your holy truth, that they will be convicted by your word and come to saving faith in Christ. Amen. Uh, follow with me as we read God's holy word through the psalmist King David, Psalm 32. A mascal of David, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when it may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay with you. It will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shouts for joy, all you upright in heart. Friends, there will be four points that I would draw from the text this morning. For those note takers, point one is the joy of sin forgiven, and that will be drawn from verses one and two. 
Point two, the lack of joy in sin concealed, verses three to five. Point three, the joy of godly living, point, uh, verses six through nine. And point four, the joy of trusting in God, verses 10 and 11. While we don't know for sure the circumstances around which Psalm 32 was written or which sins specifically David is referring to here, what we do know is that David is looking back at a time in his life when he recalls a sin that held him captive, a sin that weighed him down, a sin that was so shameful that he hides it. From his personal experience, he comes to understand that to experience God's joy, he has to first acknowledge the extent of his guilt and be right with God. And also that God's forgiveness is complete and worthy of praise. That is the lesson that he learned, and it's the lesson that he teaches from Psalm 32. David, as we know, is a biblical figure who is known as a faithful man of God, a man after God's own heart. When we glance through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel that tell a story, we won't find many examples of a sin that fit the context of this psalm until we get to chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel. It is here that the story of David and Bathsheba in adultery, deceit, and murder is brought to our attention. When King David wrote Psalm 32, he used three words to describe his wickedness, transgression, sin, and iniquity. And each of these words has a nuanced meaning that help us to understand the totality of David's sin and then later appreciate the blessings of God's complete forgiveness. Let's look together again at Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, where we will unpack point one, the joy of sin forgiven. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Transgression is a rebellion against the authority of God. Anytime you willfully act against the authority of God, you have transgressed. This is a sin where you know what you're supposed to do, but you do what you want to do anyway. The psalmist wants the reader to know that he was guilty of acting against the authority of God. The account in 2 Samuel 11 may tell us how. We learn from this chapter that King David, that King David saw from his royal palace Bathsheba bathing naked in her balcony. And then acting on the lust of his heart, he requested that she be brought to him. He was told that Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah, one of his most trusted and honorable soldiers. But he didn't care, and he laid with her anyway, and as a result, Bathsheba became pregnant. This story is an example of a transgression against God. Still in verse 1, we see the second word used to describe the wickedness of David, and that's the word sin. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Again, 2 Samuel 11 may be helpful in providing context as we learn that after Bathsheba becomes pregnant with King David's child, he covers up his sin by sending her husband Uriah to the front lines of battle, basically ensuring his death and covering up the identity of the child, the child's father. The word sin is an archer's term that means to miss the mark. This is when your aim or intention comes up short of what God's God intended for us to reach. By using this word, David is telling the reader that he not only willfully went against God's authority, but he totally missed the mark. We move now to verse 2, 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Iniquity is a word for sin that means bent, twisted, or distorted. It has the same nuanced meaning as being perverted, perverting that which is right. This word refers to our very nature, which is warped and distorted and bent toward evil. David describes his sin in the negative in verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity or imputes no iniquity. Imputes is an accounting term which speaks to a debt that has not yet been counted. He finishes the back half of verse 2 by reminding us that there is no deceit in the spirit of a blessed man, a concept that becomes apparent when we get to verse 5, which is at the heart of this psalm. Friends, the point that David is making is that all of these words for sin illustrate ways that we are condemned as guilty before a righteous and just God. We have to first know and understand the depths of our sin, the filthiness of our sin, the dirtiness of our sin, before we can go to the throne and ask for forgiveness. It's only then that we can begin to understand that we are forgiven. This is at the core of our Christian faith and as Tim Garber taught us a couple of Sundays ago from Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. We are all sinners. But notice that in verse 1 and 2, David also shows how God forgives completely. Look at the words that he used to describe God's mercy and grace, forgiveness, cover, and impute, which implies imputation of righteousness. If transgression, sin, and iniquity were used to describe the totality of David's sin, then forgiveness, cover, and imputation of righteousness are used to describe the fullness of God's grace. Verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Forgiven means to bear, to carry off, to take away a burden. Our sin, for example, is a burden which God bears or takes away. We're all familiar with the term scapegoat. A scapegoat takes the blame and everyone else goes free. David is evoking the same kind of idea here. The term comes from the Hebrew sacrificial system where the high priest would select a goat, lay his hands on his head, and confess the sins to the people. By doing so, the high priest was placing their sins on the goat in a ceremonial fashion. The animal was, was then sent into the wilderness as a picture of how God carried their sins away from himself. The sacrificial system pointed ahead to Jesus who was the perfect and final scapegoat for our sins. Look again at verse 1. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Covered means out of sight. God puts our sin out of his sight, which means that he's never going to bring up our sins as a matter of judgment between him and us. If we're in Christ, our sins are covered by his blood. This is a great picture of complete forgiveness. You know, one of the things that our two youngest grandchildren liked to do when they would come over to our house to play, when they were about four or five years old, would be to hide objects around the house. They wouldn't tell you that they were doing this, and we weren't playing the game, and you wouldn't know that something was missing until you couldn't find it. Needless to say, Papa Sweep, as, as they would call me, was not very fond of this game, especially when nighttime came and I was looking for the remote and couldn't find it. Many times, objects that they hid were never found again. I don't know how kids are able to do that, but those of you who have kids know all about socks that are never found. 
This is what God does to our sins. He puts our sins out of his sight and he hides them. The nakedness of our sin is covered by the righteous garments of God's forgiveness. Look again at verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Not counted or not imputed means that our sins are not charged against our account. There's a reckoning of accounts. The verb used here is the same verb God uses in his dealings with Abraham in Genesis 15:6 when he said, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness, or credited it to him as righteousness. Friends, what David is trying to convey to us is that when we acknowledge our guilt before the Lord, he will completely blot out our sins. Not partially, but completely. We're not blessed because we're righteous. We're blessed because we're forgiven. This was true then and is true now in light of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. The good news was made possible for us through the cleansing of sin by Jesus Christ when he paid the price for our sins, staining the cross with his blood and canceling the sin debt for all that would believe in his name. Jesus exchanged our sin for his perfect righteousness so that we can one day stand before God and he would see not our sin, but the holy righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed, crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought peace with God was on him. Believer, forgiveness is a deliberate act of love, mercy, and grace. It's something to be joyful about and worthy of celebration. Unbeliever, this act of free grace is also offered for you. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you place your trust in him, you will be saved, and you too will know the blessings of God. Scripture promises to all who receive him and believe in his name, he will give the right to become children of God. So unbeliever, don't delay. The time to repent and turn away from your sin is today. Let today be the day that you accept the Lord's grace and partake in his mercy. For the believer, the joy of sin forgiven should not end when God's grace is received. It should extend to all parts of our lives. When we carry the joy in Christ's forgiveness in our hearts, then there's joy in our relationships and in our marriages. There's contentment in our jobs. There is contentment in our prayers even when they have not yet been answered. We find joy in our prayer life and how we pray and how we serve others. The joy that we carried as the blessed people of God should have tentacles that reach into all aspects of our lives, and it should be evident to anyone who we encounter, from the clerk at the grocery store to our coworkers that we spend a lot of time with during the course of the week. Let me ask you, church, do you feel like you carry the joy of salvation with you? Does your life reflect the blessedness of God's grace? And if so, how? I wonder, friends, uh, how much time we actually spend thinking about the joy of God's grace. I think that if we're being truthful and we're being honest, the answer to that is not very much or at least very little. Forgiveness for many of us is like getting a gumball out of a gumball machine. We pray a prayer of forgiveness by placing our prayer coin 
in the gumball machine, and then we stick out our hands to catch the gumball of grace. We receive it, and then we move on, sometimes never even savoring the taste. Or worse, we just throw it away because we have a pocket full of prayers. David is telling us that the fact that our sins have been forgiven is not just worth thinking about, but it's worth celebrating. It's worth shouting for joy in a similar way that the Chilean miners rejoiced and celebrated after the rescue, when after 69 days of breathing dank and dingy air, they breathed fresh air for the first time. The joy of sin forgiven should feel like that for us, as if we're breathing God's refreshing, soul-restoring air for the first time. Point one, we explore the joy of sin forgiven. Now we move on to point two, the lack of joy in sin concealment. Look again at Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. In verse 3, David recalls the heavy toll that concealing his sin from the Lord took on him. He recounts the depth of torment that his guilt caused him. Notice that verse 3 describes both the physical toll of unconfessed sins, his bones wasting away, as well as the emotional and psychological effect of keeping silent about sin, his groaning. Friends, are you holding on to unconfessed sin in your life? Is there sin in your life that you've never shared with God or anyone else? Unconfessed sin can have a calamitous effect not only on you, but also on the ones that you love. Three of the most convicting words found in verse 3 are, I kept silent. I kept silent. When Christian leader Ravi Zacharias' sin was exposed, many people in the Christian community wondered how things might have been different had he confessed his sin right when it had started. You might recall that three years ago, three women came forward and accused the leader of sexual misconduct. But the truth is no one really knew when his sin had started because he kept silent. There's an article in the Gospel Coalition website entitled Bring Your Sins Into the Light by Joseph Rea in 2021, which I would commend you to read. It's helpful in understanding the destructive nature of concealed sin. In the article, Rea quotes Dietrich Bonhoeffer heavily and features Bonhoeffer's observations on the subject of concealed sin, concluding that sin isolates Christians and in so doing creates a dangerous situation because it leaves Christians alone with their sin. This, as we know, is one of the schemes of the devil. Bonhoeffer writes in Life Together, and I quote, In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. Day and night, David was affected by the destructive nature of his sin that isolated him from God. And God would not let him move forward until his sin was confronted. 
Look at Psalm 32, verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. When God's convicting hand is upon us because of unconfessed sin, we will not be able to move to experience the joy of his grace until we confess our sin and restore our fellowship with him. David describes God's hand as heavy and the vitality of his body as being sapped or dried up as if by the heat of summer because of the guilt that he carried. He describes the groaning that took place day and night, the mental anguish that became his reality because he kept silent. Friends, how would you characterize your relationship with God right now? Is there unconfessed sin in your life that doesn't allow you to move forward in your life? You can't hide from the Lord. We who are children of God need to learn this truth. There's no joy in sin for the saint of God. If we allow sin to take root in our heart, the Lord will speak to us. First, he's going to speak to us through his spirit, and if we don't heed his tender voice of conviction, he'll chastise us or discipline us to bring us back into fellowship with him. This is the lesson that we learn from the sad tale of Ravi Zacharias and the lesson that David teaches us through his personal experience. Indeed, there is a lack of joy in sin concealed. Church, when I read Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, I, I couldn't help but be reminded of a similar warning that we receive every, every month from Pastor Raymond regarding unconfessed sin right before we take the Lord's Supper. Listen afresh to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 26 to 30, and what it says can happen when we don't confess our sins. Maybe the context of this sermon will put fresh ears on these words. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, and then so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why so many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Believer and unbeliever alike, I'll ask you again, are you walking around with unconfessed sin in your life? Unbeliever, are you afraid or ashamed that if others knew about your sin that they wouldn't want to associate with you anymore? The good news of the gospel tells us that there's no sin too big that God can't cover with his cloak of loving forgiveness. God reminds us that our sins will be forgiven, our sins will be covered, and that the Lord will count no iniquity to our account. To experience God's forgiveness, you must come to him with no deceit in your spirit, Look with me at verse 5, which is really the climax of this psalm. I acknowledge my, my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Friends, God is merciful beyond all expectation. God is more ready to forgive our sins than we are to confess. When we confess our sins, we find that God is standing at the top step, ready to receive us and meet us right where we are. He's waiting with open arms to give you and me and anyone else who will come to him another chance. Confessing our sins to an almighty God frees us from the bondage of sin that holds us captive 
and prevents us from moving on in life. Friends, confessing our sins is not always easy. It can make us feel vulnerable and make us feel like death. But it was precisely when Jesus became vulnerable to death that forgiveness in life, our forgiveness in life, was secured. In Jesus, there's no reason to be reluctant about the dark parts of our heart coming into his light. John 3, verse 21 tells us, but whoever, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Listen to the second verse of Horatio Spafford's It Is Well. It helps us to understand the state of our soul when we have been freed from our sin. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Jesus' cross isn't just good news. It's our joyful song of his unfailing love and deliverance from our sin and guilt. When we confess our sins and receive his forgiveness, then our conscience is clear and our soul is well. Point one, what's the joy of sin forgiven? Point two, the lack of joy in sin concealment. Now we see point three, the joy of godly living. Read with me Psalms 32, verses 6 through 9. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you can be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Those who walk with God, who are experiencing fellowship with God, can now turn to him and experience the joy of godly living. God will be found when we have no deceit in our heart and have confessed our sins to our holy God, restoring our personal relationship with him. Psalm 32.6 is an invitation for the believer, as well as an encouragement but it also comes with a warning that we see in part B of verse 6. Psalm 32, verse 6, let, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time where you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. David here is using poetic imagery to recall Noah and the floodwaters of judgment that are upon those who do not heed the invitation to come to the Lord with a prayer of forgiveness. David is saying that if you want to experience the joy of godly living, then you have to do this before judgment comes. There was a time when the door to Noah's ark was open to anyone who wanted deliverance. As Noah was building the ark, the door was open. When Noah brought in the animals into the ark, two by two as instructed by God, the door was open. But when the rain began to fall, God closed that door and no one could get in. Recall the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him when he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way 
and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Unbeliever and believer alike, the doors are open. They're open right now. What a glorious invitation that is. What prevents you from walking through those doors? Friends, if you've forsaken your sins, confessed your sins, trusted in Christ, then you will be delivered from the floodwaters of judgment. They won't reach you. You won't be swept away by the trials and tribulations of this fallen world. Verse 7 tells us that you will experience instead God as your hiding place. Psalm 32, verse 7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Forgiveness of sin comes with the assurance that God will protect and preserve us from harm, that he will be our hiding place, that he will preserve us from trouble so that we might bask in the joy of his forgiveness. When David confessed his sin, he exchanged hiding his sin from God for a hiding place in God. And this is a great place to be when trouble comes. Church, when the challenges of life come our way, and they will come, whether it's the uncertainty of an unexpected or unwanted diagnosis, the anxiety of finding a good job or making enough money to pay the bills, the grief of losing a loved one, the struggles of maintaining a godly marriage, or the pain and sorrow of healing from a broken marriage or a failed relationship, he will preserve and protect us by providing for us a hiding place in him. Not only that, he will sing to us songs of deliverance. The song that came to mind while I was writing this this sermon was Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. God is not just a hiding place, he's your hiding place. He's your personal place of refuge. When you enter, you're going to experience a place that is welcoming, a place that is strong, familiar, and a place that feels like home. When stress seems to overwhelm you and the enemy is attacking you from all sides, you can run into your hiding place and experience protection and restoration. He will cover you from all sides and build for you a wall of protection, and he will surround you with shouts of deliverance. Friends, your hiding place in God is the place where you will find rest for your mind and spirit. It's a place where you can pray about the circumstances in your life and pray for others in your life. It's a secret place of communion that can be found every time you bow your head and acknowledge the king of glory. David's psalm continues in verses 8 and 9, where he teaches us about obedience to God's word. Look with me, verse 32, verses 8 through 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. In order to control a horse or a mule, a bit and bridle must be placed in their mouth. Without a bit and bridle, a horse or a mule will do what they want to do and go where they want to go. 
David is instructing us not to be stubborn and without understanding and not be like a horse and a mule. He's urging us to allow our lives to be guided by God's instruction and be obedient to his word. Stubbornness is defiance against God's will. David is telling us that to, uh, to allow God's instruction to be our guide in life. We shouldn't be stubborn or obstinate when it comes to God's command. We shouldn't turn our heads away and stiffen our necks. And instead, what we should do is yield and be pliable in his hands so he doesn't place a bit and bridle on us. Friends, have you ever had periods in your life where you strayed away from God? Maybe times in your life when God needed to put a bit and bridle on you to guide you back to him. How are you responding to God now, to God's direction, to God's instruction? The way not to be a mule is to humble yourself before God, to pray, to confess your sins and accept God's direction. Under the admonition of his word, you will experience divine protection and generous provision. David, in essence, is saying, I've told you about the blessed joy of sin forgiven. I've detailed for you the agony that I experienced when I didn't confess my sin to God and tried to hide my sin. I've expressed the freeing joy of confessed sin. Now follow my example and trust in the Lord, and you will experience the joy of godly living. Point one was the joy of sin forgiven. Point two, the lack of joy and sin concealment. Point three, we saw the joy of godly living. Now we get to our final point in verses 10 and 11. Point four, the joy of trusting in God. Verses 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. We can't trust someone that we don't know, and that's the secret to learning to trust God. When someone says, Trust me, we have two reactions. Either we say, yeah, I'll trust you, or we can say, why should I? When we understand why we should trust God, then following him should be a natural course of action. One of the reasons we should trust God is because he is worthy. He doesn't lie and never fails to fulfill his promises. We learned last week from Brother Eugene's sermon in Psalm 24 that the king of glory is sovereign over all things. God's plan for, plans for us, therefore, are perfect, holy, and righteous because he works all things together for our good, for those who love him and are called according to his holy purposes. When we follow God's instruction and live in him and through him, we learn that God is faithful. We can look back at our experiences of our lives as David has and recall the moments that God was faithful. This will strengthen our faith, our love, and our joy for our God. Our God is an all-wise, all-knowing, gracious, merciful, loving God who surrounds us with steadfast love. The alternative to not trusting in the Lord, David says, will be to experience the sorrows of the wicked. David ends this psalm the way he began it, reminding us about the joy that exists for the believer whose sin has been forgiven. Those of us who are in the Lord have reasons for joy. When we understand the joyful blessings of walking in God's forgiveness, David teaches us that this understanding should result for us in intense joy. The joy that we experience on this side of eternity transcends our earthly concerns, as we, even as we endure trials. 
So friends, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy because we are forgiven. We are blessed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, for, that your forgiveness is not partial, but complete. That any wrong that we have done is not held against us. Thank you, Lord, for being a God who is eager to forgive our sins and that our forgiveness comes through our faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the blessing that it is to walk in your forgiveness. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Thank you.